Hello everyone, you're listening to Plan C at the Canadian International Council. For this episode, co-host Eric Henningsmoen will chat with Professor Stephen Nagy on Canada's relations in the Indo-Pacific, the implementation of the recent Indo-Pacific strategy, and current diplomatic tensions between Canada and India. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Was the release of last year's Indo-Pacific strategy well-timed by the Canadian government? Why do you think Canada framed the document as an Indo-Pacific strategy or a China strategy? Well, thanks, Eric, for having me. And I think this is a really, really great question. Many of our friends, such as the United States and Japan and Australia, were waiting for our Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy. And they were waiting for a long time. The release that happened at the end of 2022 was, you know, well received. And I think that many of our partners were finally relieved that came out. In terms of the timing itself, I think that many of our partners within the region would have preferred it come out a year or even two years ahead, and that it reflected and conversed with many of the Indo-Pacific strategic interests that countries like Japan or the United States or Australia or India have within the region. I think that the delay from the standpoint of our allies and friends was frustrating. But again, the Canadian government did come through and put forward a strategy that reflects the nature of your second question. Why is it not a China strategy? Why is it not an Asia-Pacific strategy? And the reality is, is that the economic engine of global growth has really migrated from the Asia-Pacific to what we call the region of the Indo-Pacific. So it includes India, it includes Southeast Asia, it includes China, it includes South Korea, it includes Japan, and it includes all the countries of the Asia-Pacific region. And this is why it's called an Indo-Pacific strategy. The Canadian government recognizes that we need to invest resources so that we secure a footprint within the region. So we're part of the rules-making process of the region and that we're not locked out of the region. And that's, a, I think, a really, really important aspect of thinking about Canada's broader strategic objective and what's in our national interest is ensuring that we're part of the most dynamic region its rule-setting processes, so that what happens in the region benefits Canadians, but what happens in the region doesn't cascade into negative consequences for Canadians as well. Why is the Indo-Pacific region important for Canada? And why should Canadians care about developments in the region? So I would look at this from the standpoint of three areas, security, economics, and technology. So in terms of security, there's many what we call traditional security issues, such as proliferation of weapons of mass destruction on the Korean Peninsula. There's obviously tensions between China and Japan over the Senkaku Islands. There's deep tensions between Taiwan and China over the status of Taiwan. And we have um, artificial militarized islands built by the Chinese in the South China Sea. We also have challenges on the, in the Himalayan plateau between the Chinese and the Indian. All of these areas of conflict or potential conflict could cascade into a regional conflict that would be extremely disruptive on economies, on supply chains. And this will not stay in the region. It will spill over in Canada. So those traditional security issues are very serious and Canada needs to contribute to try and resolving some of these issues, either through its diplomatic resources or working with like-minded countries like the United States or Japan or South Korea. There's also non-traditional security challenges, such as transnational diseases, climate change, piracy, illegal fishing. And these are also a big issue for Canada, because if, for example, a huge humanitarian crisis in, let's say, Bangladesh 
or India, as portrayed by Al Gore's movie Inconvenient Truth back in the early 2000s, well, those refugees and those individuals will likely want to come to Canada or other countries. So how do we manage it? So we have a deep interest in managing those security issues. Our second area I want to focus on was economics. I mentioned that this is the center of economic growth. It has the first, second, and third most populous countries, so uh, India, China, and Indonesia has huge growing middle classes that will want Canadian products, Canadian services, Canadian agriculture, Canadian energy, and Canadian critical minerals. So economically, it's a huge, huge, huge um, opportunity for Canada. But again, if there's disruptions in the region, this will spill over into Canada. And lastly, I mentioned technology. The technological competition between the United States and China in the areas of AI and quantum computing will affect how we think about governing, the relationship between the state and its citizens, how we think about the digital, digital economy. And we want, to be, we want to make sure that we are um, cooperating with like-minded countries to ensure that competition in the area of technology locks Canada in, not locks Canada out by rules and norms that are very much in line with Canadian national interests. Excellent. And you mentioned, you know, there's this potential risk of conflict in certain regions of the Indo-Pacific. You mentioned uh, South China Sea, for example, or the Himalayas uh, with India. In the event of such conflict, what kind of tools or policy responses is available to Canada? And does Canada have the capabilities to respond in any meaningful or helpful way? Well, we should be realistic about what Canada can offer in terms of security tools to the region. We are a big country geographically, but of course we have a smaller population and we don't have the same number of ships as even Japan or South Korea or Australia has. And the region is far. So that I think when we're thinking about these security challenges that are outlined, probably what we can contribute is capabilities. So a maritime domain awareness capabilities. Maybe we have very functional cooperation in certain areas, such as sanction evasions that are already being conducted in the Sea of Japan to try and cut off North Korea from energy and outside resources. We may want to lend some of our experts to help build deterrence capabilities within the region or to serve on U.S. or uh, Japanese or South Koreans or Australian ships to provide that expertise. I think this is a realistic way to deal with some of the challenges within the region. But we need to also think about how we can creatively use our diplomatic resources. January 2018, after the nuclear test by North Korea, our government convened a meeting in Vancouver, bringing together other middle powers and the United States to talk about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Our diplomatic resources should be used to try and deal with some of the security challenges within the region or at least create the opportunity to discuss and, and develop strategies to deal with the real security challenges within the region. This is how I see Canada contributing to the region, but I think it's also important to think about how we contribute to the region before a conflict emerges. That means being a reliable, credible partner to uh, our partners within the region. And here Canada needs to use its comparative advantages such as its enormous energy resources, critical mineral resources, agricultural resources, and I think intelligence resources to be a, a credible and reliable partner to economies within the region, such as Japan or South Korea, Southeast Asian economies. So their economies remain stable, uh, they remain uh, vibrant. And remember, those uh, countries engage with us economically, 
They have businesses in, in, in Canada and they hire hundreds of thousands of Canadians. So it's really critical that we continue to uh, be that reliable, credible partner that ensures those countries' economic security remains robust and sustainable and vibrant. And Canada had a particularly uh, strong response to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, in 2022, uh, with that pillars being uh, economic sanctions, intelligence sharing and information sharing, uh, as well as uh, military, humanitarian and financial aid. Does that provide a model to Canada's response to other conflicts or potential conflicts in the Asia Pacific region? I think that we should be clear that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is one kind of scenario where Canada contribute. And as you've mentioned, we've done some really interesting things in terms of training Ukrainian soldiers, providing weapons, using our diplomatic capabilities to work with other countries to put financial sanctions on Russia. So I think this demonstrates that we have a whole array of different kinds of tools that we can use to bring to bear working with other countries on aggressive states or states that want to change the status quo. And when we think about the Indo-Pacific region, I think that you know each problem requires different kinds of cooperation. Let's take, by way of example, let's take North Korea and its weapons proliferation. So it's trying to build a nuclear deterrent. It's been relatively successful. It's building a host of delivery systems, a short, mid, and long-range systems to um, circumvent the anti-ballistic missile systems within the region. So what can Canada do here? Well, the sanctions invasion operations that we're already doing serves to limit the resources that North Korea has. We need to perhaps work with other countries, the diplomatic front, to create more pressure on North Korea, but also perhaps find ways to engage with North Korea. But when we think about things such as the Taiwan Strait issue, again, converging how we talk about it, you know, peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits, ensuring that we don't talk about Taiwan as a you know, sovereign nation state, an independent state, I think is important. I think coordinating our deterrence capabilities and messaging to China that we don't accept a forced reunification will be really, really important. When we turn to the South China Sea, again, you know, the South China Sea is international waters, so we should be able to sail there freely by ourselves with other countries. So we need to engage in those activities. And then on the Himalayan plateau with the conflict between the Chinese and the uh, Indians, it may seem far away, but I think Canada has a role in providing some resources to the Indians so they can be better prepared to secure their position in the Himalayan plateau and prevent Chinese intrusions into their territory. So there's a lot of different areas, but Canada's role will be different depending on the nature of the security challenge that is in that region. One of Canada's closest allies is, of course, the United States. Within the United States political system, there's a high degree of consensus in uh, Congress and amongst U.S. policymakers that China has emerged as a strategic rival and potential adversary for America. It's potentially one of the few places there is consensus in Congress right now. How closely should Canada attack to uh, U.S. policy regarding China? Well, I think it's really important for us to maintain our autonomy, our choices when it comes to China. And that may sometimes mean that we take a slightly different approach compared to the United States. But in reality, on so many different levels, Canadian government, the U.S. government sees issues uh, very similar with regards to the nature of the Chinese state, the nature of the Chinese challenge. The big difference is the vulnerability. The United States is the superpower. Its resources are immense. And it is seen as a peer of China, not 
you know, a more powerful actor. Where Canada is seen by China as a minor, minor actor, a minor state north of the United States. And it's, you know, much more sensitive to pressure by China, whether it's economic coercion or, as we saw, hostage diplomacy with the Michaels. Or right now, as we're recording this, Canada has not been listed as a country where Chinese tour groups could come to visit. You know, China understands that Canada is much smaller, has much less capabilities, and it can be pressured in a way that the United States can't. And as a result, I think that Canadian policymakers must have a slightly different approach to China, which reflects the vulnerabilities within the relationship and the asymmetric nature of the relationship. And this is why I continue to say that, you know, by and large, we're on the same page of the Book of the United States, but we may have to choose a slightly different approach of how we engage in China to ensure that we don't become collateral damage in increasingly uh, intense U.S.-China strategic competition. And we've already seen that. Again, the arrest with the Michaels in, was a result of the United States making a request for the arrest of the Huawei executive, Meng Wanzhou. And these poor men, they've faced almost two and a half years in a Chinese prison as a result. And I think this is the example of collateral damage that we need to be very, very, very careful in terms of avoiding. And as a result, we need to craft a policy that reflects these vulnerabilities. You already mentioned news this week that China would no longer uh, list Canada as a destination for tourist groups uh, coming from mainland China to visit Canada. And that obviously would have a huge economic impact for Canadian tourism operators as well as degrade the Canadian brand in the eyes of the Chinese. I was wondering between that and recently... Uh, Canadian government suspended its engagement with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Are we seeing a decoupling between Canada and China in terms of economic cooperation? So I don't think we're seeing a decoupling. Um, you know, research organizations like the Canada West Foundation has demonstrated uh, that Canada's trade relationship with China has continued to deepen uh, despite the worsening of the political relations over the past four years. Um, so this is a, an interesting, um, I guess, data point to suggest that the political issues can coexist with um, deepening trade. Um, we see that um, Canada continues to want to have a, an economic relationship with China. We have a lot of uh, great goods that the Chinese economy needs, whether it's food or ag uh, other agricultural products, potentially energy, potentially critical minerals. Uh, of course, services um, that uh, will be important as the Chinese economy continues to develop. Um, and uh, as a result, I don't think we're seeing a decoupling, but we're seeing a slight recalibration or transformation of our economic relationship based on the new political dynamics um, where um, some parts of the Chinese market are becoming less attractive, where other parts remain uh, really attractive, such as, as, as helping China deal with food security. So decoupling uh, is something that we're not going to see, um, but we are going to see uh, a transformation of our economic footprint uh, and relationship with China. Moving back to the Indo-Pacific strategy, in your recent paper with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, you talk about the state of current implementation. How is that implementation going and has Canada enjoyed any notable successes with implementation recently? 
This is a great question, Eric. It's only really been about eight, nine months since the strategy was released. I think that the government is going through, you know, finding ways to communicate about the strategy and finding ways to, you know, highlight its implementation. Myself, you know, I was able to go to Vietnam back in February this year to give a public presentation and be part of the public diplomacy process where we spoke to Vietnamese about the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy, as well as to think tankers in Vietnam. So I think that they're starting the process of reaching out and getting the resources. We see the Canadian government have funds to help Canadian chambers of commerce within the region to build their capacity so they can enhance small and medium-sized enterprises, Canadian enterprises in the region. And there's other funding as well to send Canadian scholars to the region so they can get more experience. So I think it's really a gradual implementation process. And we're going to start to see that process over time expand. And they'll need to be better communicators about it, but it'll take some time until it gets some momentum. I think one thing we should be looking at, for example, we had Canada and Asia conference in February in Singapore. That's gonna happen again next year. We're seeing an increased number of trade missions, one to India, one to Japan in the fall, perhaps another trade mission. We're seeing Canada more actively participate in some of the security cooperation within the region. So the neon sanctions operations, we're seeing some Canadian warships participating in quad exercises as a plug-in partner. So I think collectively it's gathering momentum, but it'll take some time to create the results. But overall, I think that the engagement process requires time before we can say, oh yeah, it's, it's doing this and it's doing that. It's going to take five years before we start to see real effects of this strategic shift in thinking about our foreign policy. And what do you think are some notable barriers uh, Canada faces as it tries to achieve its goals in the Indo-Pacific region? I think credibility is still a challenge. And what I mean by that is that in 2017, when our government stepped away from the TPP negotiations at the last minute, created some credibility issues in terms of how serious we are in terms of trade. We eventually signed the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, but I think it's it's left a negative taste in some of the partners' minds in the region. You've probably noticed that we're not part of the quadrilateral security dialogue or the AUKUS agreement or the Indo-Pacific economic framework. And each of these are different kinds of institutions. But the fact that we're not part of these organizations suggests that the other members don't see Canada, again, as reliable or a partner that can contribute to these organizations. And I think that this is something that we need to be thinking about. I think the region also looks at some of the, I guess, the progressive cultural sides of the Canadian foreign policy as really inappropriate ways to engage in the region. And, you know, in my travels, I hear constantly, it's okay for you to have these policies back home, but here in, in, in the region, these are just not priorities. We have serious security challenges. We're interested in trade prior to our sovereignty and you talking about human rights or democracy promotion or some of the progressive identity issues really are not suitable. And there's real dissatisfaction and wonder why the government is engaged in these policies. I think that the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy, on the other hand, has some really interesting and creative sides, such as environmental cooperation and indigenous cooperation between Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and Taiwan. So there are some real wins and creative Regarding the conversation on human rights, Canada's been a longtime advocate and promoter of human rights globally and has taken on and domestically a number of social justice goals in its own 
domestic policy. Yet human rights are can often be defined or viewed quite differently in certain regions of the Indo-Pacific. So how can Canada best use its influence to promote human rights and, you know, pursue those values it holds very dearly while also avoiding alienating potential partners in the region? Policies, but also a bit of more work needs to be done to ensure that Canada is seen as a credible actor in the region. I guess I'm one of those people that does believe in the universality of human rights. But at the same time, and it might be contradictory, I think that we have to be realistic, you know, interest-based in terms of how we engage in a very heterogeneous region. And what I mean by heterogeneous, we have Japan, which shares many, many values, South Korea, Vietnam, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, Australia, India. Very different states, very different views about gender, about sexuality, about human rights. And if we put human rights front and center in our foreign policy relations, as I think some have advocated, we will not have relations with most of the states within the region. So I think we can talk about human rights differently by changing words and changing our approach. So as opposed to promoting human rights, we promote good governance so that the state is providing for all citizens. We may want to talk about improving outcomes for all members of society rather than, again, talking about human rights. And these might be better ways to engage with authoritarian states like China, like Vietnam, like soft authoritarian states in Singapore, or flawed democracies such as Indonesia and the Philippines and India, because they are not prioritizing human rights in their foreign policy or how they engage in the significant challenges they face. So approaches. And again, I think the approach of focusing on good governance is a really, really positive way to help these countries improve their governance, which downstream will probably improve human rights as well. On that note, is Canada potentially suffering from a soft power deficit in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, I don't think we have a soft power. I don't think we have a brand. And I don't think many countries within the Indo-Pacific really have a, an image of Canada except for cold, nice people. Depending on the generation, they may know Celine Dion or Corey Hart, but there's not a strong image. So in this sense, Canada branding needs to be improved. And that means not only diplomats, but in trade shows, chambers of commerce need to talk about what are Canadian technologies, what's the nature of the Canadian economy, what are the ways that Canada's engaged in trade in the region. Promotion of some uh, cultural areas is important. Our domestic strengths, whether it's education or other services, these all need to be promoted better so the region understands what Canada is, what it offers, what is its place within the region. And at this stage, I think that branding is still very, very weak. And as a result, some of the Indo-Pacific stakeholders really don't know how to engage with Canada. So for our last part of the interview, Stephen, I just had a few questions about your career and the different activities, academic and policy related you engage in. So how did you originally become interested in international relations and why did you choose Asia as your region of focus? So I guess there's two ways to think about this. So I used to ski race on the Canadian National Disabled Ski Team. So I got a lot of experience traveling. And one of the last places I went when I was an athlete was Japan. So this gave me a taste. Asia, modernity coexisting with tradition. At that time, back in 91, Japan was still, you know, the second largest economy by far. You know, movies like Blade Runner and the miniseries Shogun, the manga Akira were all kind of really in my mind and it made the region really attractive. And I also found many films that emerged out of Taiwan on China, whether it was Qing Dynasty China or Republican China or Communist China, 
to be really, really attractive. So I was inclined towards the region. And in my last year of my undergraduate, I took a course in China. It was an intensive study course. I think we did six weeks every day for eight hours on contemporary Chinese history and politics. And then we went to China with our professor, Dr. Muhammad Yunus, who's passed now. And he was a former ambassador to China, and he had all these great stories about meeting Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping and Zhou Enlai. And, you know, when you travel with somebody and everywhere you go, there's a story, it becomes alive and the whole region became alive. And I looked at the region as the, the future. And I said, I want to be part of this future. What do I need to do? So I came back from my study abroad. I took IR courses in the afternoon, tried to do a master's degree in medical biochemistry at University of Calgary. And I eventually gave that up and decided to move to the region to learn um, the language, to get an MA and PhD in international relations, to get work experience and study other languages such as Cantonese and Mandarin. Yeah, it just went from there. Today, uh, you know, I'm a professor at the International Christian University. I belong to a bunch of think tanks writing policy work. And it's fascinating to see the region, talk about the region, uh, share insights about the region, and be part of the changes in the region. And throughout your career, Stephen, you have worked to bridge the gap between international relations scholarship and practical public policy, including your work with numerous think tanks and multilateral groups. So for our listeners who are interested in pursuing a similar career path, what advice would you give them? So I think communication skills is really critical, Eric. I think building a good network so I don't know everything, but I do know somebody that may know somebody that knows somebody that may be able to help me with whatever issue I'm doing. I think it's really important to get some experience within the region. So if we're talking about a professional career in international relations in the Indo-Pacific region, that you should not just be in Japan or South Korea or China, but rather several countries so you understand how it all fits together. I think it doesn't really matter so much if you are, let's say you study philosophy or business or international relations or poetry, rather it's how you think about bringing different knowledge sets together and trying to make that into a relatable, practical policy initiatives. And I think that is something that takes a little bit of time to develop that skill. But I really don't think you necessarily have to be a political scientist or an international relations scholar to do these things. But you need to have a deep interest in try to connect the dots. I think always wanting to learn is really an important skill and willing to transition between different careers. So not only academia, not only the business world, maybe not even government, but a willingness to move between sectors to get a better sense of how that's all connected. I think these are some ideas. I don't think there's a perfect recipe, but it helps. Language acquisition and cultural immersion is important, but you can't know every language and you can't know every culture, but you can attempt to learn a language or two and pick up a few words here and there and get more familiar with some of the cultural tendencies within the region. And this just takes time, interaction with many kinds of people. So I think that's also important. You're working in academia, and you're also making significant contributions to think tanks and public policy discussions in Canada, in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. How do you find balance between uh, kind of those two facets of your career? 
So in some ways, they're complementary. In some ways, they're very, very different skill sets. So in academia, to move up through the scholarly world, you need to have peer-reviewed journals, numbers of citations, and the current trend is to focus on theoretical and methodological development. While I think this is important, I think academia has moved in a position where there's too much specialization and not enough practical application of the research that is being produced. And this tension doesn't seem to be going away. So if you want to survive, you need to produce academic work that is thoroughly researched and balanced and understand that your promotion through the scholarly world is dependent on those publications. But at the same time, I think you need to create space where you are writing policy-relevant work or engage in what I call public intellectualism, so writing op-eds to try and shape and influence the thinking of ordinary people that are reading newspapers. And that skill set is different. So intellectual work, like public intellectualism, is about simplifying issues, trying to explain why we need to have a relationship with China, rather than just saying it's bad or it's good. And then policy work in think tanks is, again, taking complex issues and translating it into explanations and analysis that people working in the public sector, bureaucrats, can implement. This means giving insight in terms of the dynamics of, let's say, countries or political systems, talking about and providing examples of how Canada can engage. This comes through experience, moving away from theory and methods and moving towards how policymakers or business people are thinking about building relationships and engagement. This takes some practice. It's not always in line with how scholars work. Canada has alleged that a Canadian citizen may have been assassinated by agents linked to the Indian government in British Columbia. Do you think this threatens derail the Indo-Pacific strategy and the implementation? Well, it's a very serious accusation that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has alleged in terms of a foreign government assassinating a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. This is unprecedented. It places Canada in a position where it is trying to match what it should do is protect all citizens in Canada from any kind of harm from a foreign entity with balancing its Indo-Pacific engagement. I think we are headed for a very difficult relationship with India moving forward. This is not something that has been sparked by this incident, but rather a track record of miscalculation and misplacing the relationship with India in the context of uh, some of the more progressive approaches to foreign policy here in Canada. So I think that what has happened is serious. It's going to need a, a lot of nuanced diplomacy in terms of resurrecting the relationship so that India is an important part of our Indo-Pacific strategy. And Stephen, what can we expect if the situation continues to escalate between India and Canada? Well, I think that we've already seen an escalation with the Indians uh, recommending that their citizens do not travel to Canada. There's been, I think, some disinformation suggesting that Indian citizens will be a danger in Canada. In reality, I don't think that's the case whatsoever. Canada has yet to respond. What I do think is that the free trade agreement that was really being negotiated for the end of this year is probably not going to happen. The trade mission to India is likely not going to happen. And deepening Indian 
Canada relations is going to be on hold for the unforeseen future until we find a way to either substantiate the accusations that have been alleged or Canada decides to find a different approach to deal with this very serious issue of a Canadian citizen being assassinated on Canadian soil. India is an important country of immigration to Canada, as well as a major market for international students studying in Canada. Is Canada risking this major source of immigration by making these accusations? I really don't think that Canada has a choice if the intelligence is correct and that there is proof that it was planned and prepared for it and then implemented on Canadian soil by the Indian government. It would be impossible for the Canadian government, a conservative or a liberal, not to respond in this way. Normally, though, I think that what would happen is that this, there would be a private discussion with Indian counterparts about these kinds of issues. Um, it would try to be settled behind closed doors. But for whatever reason, Prime Minister Trudeau decided to talk about this in the parliament and make it a very public affair. This puts Canada in a position where they really can't back down. And I hate to say this, but it reminds me of the Miss Meng Wanzhou arrest, where Canada could have probably avoided the troubles associated with Miss Meng Wanzhou and the subsequent arrests of Michael Spavro and Michael Kovrig by avoiding detaining Miss Meng Wanzhou or at least not talking about it so publicly because it creates the conditions where in that case the Chinese couldn't back down and in this case the Indians will be unlikely able to back down. If you follow any of the Indian discussions and media, they are tearing apart our Prime Minister Trudeau, they are talking about Canada and very demeaning ways and they look at at least the domestic narrative in India is really condemning all aspects of the Trudeau government and its approach to bilateral relations. I think that this will create challenges in terms of how Canada is going to fill some of its labor shortages with highly skilled migrants from India if Indians think that Canada is somehow dangerous or anti-Indian, which I actually don't think it's dangerous or anti-Indian, but this is the narrative that is being deployed by Indian government. And this is going to create challenges, as you mentioned. How do we fill all these labor shortages that we need, the highly skilled engineers, computer programmers, doctors, lawyers, dentists? Yeah, it seems like the government didn't think about the downstream consequences of having such an open and, in many ways, confrontational approach to dealing with this very sensitive issue. Um, that being said, again, it was a Canadian citizen that was assassinated on Canadian soil. I'm very sympathetic to the view or to the fact that it's really untenable for a Canadian Prime Minister or any Canadian leader to not fully defend and try to address this issue publicly. Stephen, you mentioned that over the past uh, few years, uh, Canada has produced frosty relations with India, China, the United States, some of the largest countries, some of the largest economies in the world. How can it move forward to renew these relationships while still pursuing its national interests? Well, I think if we're looking at Canadian foreign policy in general, you know, I have great concerns. Right now, we've just alienated India, a country of 1.5 billion people an important part of our Indo-Pacific strategy and Indo-Pacific pivot. Our relations with China are not good. They continue to be extremely frosty. We have very little communication, and that's another second biggest economy on the planet and our second biggest trading partner. Our relationship with Russia, of course, is broken as Canada continues to rightly defend Ukraine from the invasion of, of Russia. And, you know, in 2024, there's the real possibility that Donald Trump will be elected the president of the United States. And I don't think we'll fare as well as we did during the first Trump administration as a potential Trump 2.0 that would be hyper America first. It would be much more organized, much more systematic in terms of how it's 
are willing to use the size of its economy to pressure and bully not only foes, but allies and friends to get what they want. So for me, there's really open questions of where and how Canada has got to this position where it's alienated such a large number of critically important countries to a few, for our future. For me, this means what well, leads me to the belief that we seriously need a foreign policy reset. We really need to think much more realistically how if we're engaging in the world. We need a sober assessment of our national interests and our capabilities and a much more interest-based approach to the Indo-Pacific, to India, to China, to the world, rather than a values-based approach, which continues to get us in trouble. I, I can't underscore this enough. We've alienated you know, the, the first and second largest countries on the planet, Russia, of course, and the United States, which is the biggest economy on the planet, moving forward. Uh, how do we deal with this? Uh, what is the right approach? Again, I think uh, much more realism in our middle power diplomacy that focuses on an interest-based approach. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't support you know, human rights and democracy and, and diversity at home. But again, I think there's limits of using these kinds of pillars in any foreign policy. Quite frankly, we're comparatively very small uh, compared to 20 or 30 years ago. The Indonesian economy, the Vietnamese economy, the South Korean, Japanese, Taiwanese, Australian economies are all much bigger comparatively. And as a result, Canada is in a place where it doesn't have the resources to influence uh, other countries. So I think a sober assessment of our interests. Second is focusing on what is our national interest. And here I'm thinking in terms of the Indo-Pacific, our interests are being part of the rulemaking process of the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, we're at the table, not on the menu. Now, if we want to be part of the rules making process, what that basically means is that we are trying to find compromise with regional stakeholders about how trade should go on, how the digital economy should evolve, how we should deal with regional security issues, the priorities in terms of the environment and, and climate change, um, how to cooperate on transnational diseases. So we should be part of the rulemaking process rather than being locked out of the rules making process that would prejudice Canadian businesses and Canada in general. Second, we should be very much part of, of trying to prevent non-traditional security challenges from emerging. That's climate change, transnational diseases, etc. Because the Indo-Pacific region is really the center of global growth, the center of global potential global instability or stability. We want to be part of, of that. Lastly, and I think really importantly, we need to identify key partners that are share similar values that we can work with and do engage in meaningful, sustainable diplomacy. So here I'm thinking about Japan, I'm thinking about South Korea, I'm thinking about the United States, I'm thinking about Singapore, I'm thinking about Australia, of course, the European countries. We have a lot more in common with them and we should engage in the region with these like-minded countries and use them as pivot points to build synergy so we can achieve our national interests. That doesn't mean we alienate countries like Vietnam or India or China that have very different political systems or different values about democracy. But what it means is that when we engage with these larger countries or countries of different political systems, that we're doing it from a position of strength, position of concentrated resources, and a position where we are working with um, allies and partners to, again, ensure that the kind of diplomacy that goes on is meaningful, sustainable, and realistic based on the resources that we have. How can Canada use its strength as a multicultural country as an asset as it pursues its uh, strategy in the Indo-Pacific? 
so that is one of the the amazing aspects of Canada. We have people of many different cultural backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, and we generally live together and coexist in a way that is pretty harmonious. What I think when we are trying to leverage our multicultural background is that we should leverage the communities to get a better understanding of the countries in, let's say, the Indo-Pacific region. We have large Canadian-Chinese community. Uh, why not work with them so that we have a better understanding of uh, greater China, the political dynamics, economic dynamics, cultural dynamics. We have a, a very, very upwardly mobile Indian-Canadian community as well. They seem to be well situated for us to be able to engage with India in a more nuanced way. Same can be said for South Korea, the same can be said for Japan, the same can be said for Southeast Asian countries. So. I think working with those communities, if they're interested, helping them build across uh, transnational networks and engagement platforms, ensuring that we are being informed by these different cultural groups about the trends in the region are really important ways for us to leverage our multicultural background. And I think uh, we do this pretty well, but I think that we could do it even better by more consciously thinking about how our diversity in Canada can allow us to access many different economies, many different cultures, many different political systems in a more nuanced and balanced way. But at the same time, I think we need to be very careful that we're not evangelizing our own multiculturalism, our own ideas of what is the benefits of diversity, and our own ideas about human rights or representative democracy. Because the region um, is heterogeneous in terms of its political systems, its economic systems, and they have much more conservative views about uh, many of the values that I think Canada cherishes and champions. I don't think we should mix these two approaches up. Thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for this insightful discussion on the Indo-Pacific and uh, Canadian foreign policy. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Eric. And I hope Plan C does contribute to how Canadians are thinking about the Indo-Pacific region, the opportunities, and how we need to really think about engagement, learning, and thinking about this really consequential region. Thanks again for joining us at Plan C. That was Stephen Nagy, professor at International Christian University in Tokyo and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. If you're interested in learning more about Canada and the Indo-Pacific, we recommend Stephen's recent Canadian Global Affairs Institute policy paper on the topic. A link's in the description for this episode. We'll see you again for the next episode, and thanks for tuning in. Take care.